Good morning, everyone. Good morning. How's it going? If you haven't, if you haven't met me, my name is Sheridan. I'm, I'm calling myself the new guy. I'm extremely new to EFCA, and so I would love to just get to know all of you after this and introduce myself. I'm terrible with names, and so I'm probably going to have to ask you a few times to uh, remember your name, but I'm Sheridan, and I'm kicking off um, our topic, Matt and I's topic for today, which is the priority of unity. And to just give you some context, I was the lead pastor, formerly known as Providence Church. Matt was the lead pastor, formerly known as Hope Church, and we decided to do something crazy and merge churches. Um, And so they said, hey, why don't you guys talk about why you did that? And why unity is such a priority for you. And so here's what I want to do for you guys today. I want to share my heart of why unity, not just recently, but for most of my life, has been such of a priority. And then Matt is going to give a teaching on the theology of unity a little bit. And then we're going to have some time for a QA. and a Sound good? I want to pray for us. Father God, we thank you for an opportunity to consider something that I believe um, is incredibly important to your heart. It's this idea that it's refreshing when brothers and sister and God's people dwell in unity. And so today, Lord, as we talk about what it means for unity to be a priority, would through your word and through your Holy Spirit, would you just captivate our hearts? Would you give us creative ideas on what it means to have a kingdom perspective in our church context, Lord? And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So can you change slides? So I want you to close your eyes. I want us to do a meditation to kick things off for a second. And I want you to imagine you're about to die, that you're about to pass away and be with the Lord. I know sort of a a, a morbid thought, but where you are, you know you're about to pass away, you know you're about to be with Jesus, and you're surrounded by your family and friends. You're surrounded by people maybe you've coached, maybe you've taught, maybe you're even surrounded by the people in your church that you're discipling at this very moment. And you have one opportunity to share something with them. And this will be the lasting message that you give to the people that you've discipled, that you poured your life into. What would that message be? What words come to mind? What phrases come to mind? What scriptures come to mind that you would want to convey to your people. You can open your eyes. I wanted to do this meditation because I I, I think it's really powerful to consider the fact that in John 17, Jesus is about to go to the cross And he prays something. He's someone who's about to die. And he puts all of his effort into speaking about one topic. And that is the unity of the future believers. 
us in this room, that we would be one just as he and the Father are one. He's about to go to the cross, he's about to die, and he's saying, this is the message that I want you to know. This is the lasting impact that I want to leave with you. That all of you would be one, like in this Trinitarian relationship that I have with the Father. I tell our church all the time, John 17 to this day is my favorite passage in the Bible. Because a few years back, actually quite a few years ago, I was having some major church hurt. I don't know if you've ever had some major church hurt, but I was definitely a church cynic. I had been serving in different churches. I was a PK. I was a pastor's kid, which means I knew how to say all the right things at the right time, and I spoke, you know, the Christian language fluently, and I knew about God, but I didn't really know him in an intimate way. And one night, I'm at my parents' house, and I pick up my word, and I'm very disillusioned. And I'm pretty much saying, I think I'm done with all of this. Whatever this is, I've been so hurt. I'm so frustrated. Lord, I don't know what you're doing in my life, but you need to show me something. You need to show me a sign. And so I do that thing. I don't know if you've ever done it where you you spin the globe and you tell your family, this is where we're going on vacation next, you know. And then it points to, you know, somewhere you don't really want to be. So, you, you know, spin it again, right? So I take the Bible and I just start flipping. And I land in the Gospel of John and I just start reading about Jesus and him being the word. And, and I'm reading about all of his miracles. And then I get to John 17 and I read this passage where Jesus says, I pray that the future believers would be one just as you and I are one. And I start weeping. I just start weeping. I just start crying. There was something so beautiful about what Jesus was saying. And one of the reasons why it was so powerful in that moment that I believe God used to really begin reconstructing the intimacy that I had with him is because he was speaking directly to me. And he was speaking directly to us. I felt prayed for. And, you know, as I've been talking with Matt about what we want to talk about, I've been considering the fact that unity for all of us, no matter what capacity we're serving in um, in our churches, has to be a priority because it was a priority to our Savior. It was a priority to our King. And so... Can you change the next slide for me? This is what I saw. The vision of a unified church was one of the most beautiful things I have ever beheld. Somehow, this idea of oneness with other believers in a church deepened my intimacy with Christ. He, he didn't really take me to, to, to Romans and I, I didn't go to Galatians to, to re-understand the beauty of the gospel. All of those things are powerful. All of those things I've reconsidered. He took me to John 17. And what that showed me is that I had had this idea that my relationship with God was really about me. Like I was the main character. And that this was Sheridan's story and how God was just sort of a, a centerpiece or kind of what he was doing through me. 
And what John 17 showed me is I had been living out my faith solo. I had been thinking all of my theology, all of the things that I'm packaging together, it's just me and you, Lord. The people in the church, they're crazy. And so as long as we're just, it's just me and you, we're going to stay on track here. And what the Lord showed me, he says, no, there's a body of believers that you're missing out on. And there's something that I want to invite you into where I want you to see that what I've called you to is not uniformity and sameness. I've called you to oneness despite differences. And so fast forward. I have this incredible passion about unity. I'm always talking to people about unity, how God has called us to be one. I preach six sermons a year on John 17, and my church at this point is like, I get it. You know, God has called us to be one. And so I'm super passionate, and my wife introduces me to Matt and Sarah, and it was love at first sight, you know, like he's, we're like at the, the dinner table and he's sharing the mission and the vision that he has for Hope Church. And I'm just like, wow, this is awesome. And at that point, I'm not even thinking about what it would look like to partner for the kingdom of God in Sacramento. Um, and then we merged churches. And then I saw how hard unity actually is. I mean, my passion didn't waver, but I saw... That merging churches is a lot like a marriage. And everybody I talked to when we were considering this, when we were praying about this, all of the pastors and mentors I talked to said, hey, don't do this. Don't do this. Hey, I love Matt Moore. I love the church there. But this doesn't work. All right? This is really hard. And it kind of reminded me of what everybody told me when I was uh, engaged to my wife. They didn't say, don't do this. They just always talked about how hard it was. And at a certain point, I would start laughing and be like, hey, is anyone going to tell me that marriage is fun and that this is good and that this is beautiful? Isn't this what God has called me to? And that's what I felt when people started talking about this idea of merging churches. And so dating was fun. You know, we're, we're thinking through how our theology aligns. We're thinking through our different philosophy of leadership. Matt and, and I were in different meetings and we're taking combat, compatibility tests and we're high-fiving and we're like, yes, that's exactly my mission and vision for Oak Park 2. Yes, this is going to be awesome. And then we're getting our respective elders on board and then we get engaged and we're in all these subcommittees and we're looking at you know, org charts and, and who's going to be here and, and, and all of these different things. And then we get married. And then it gets hard. And I'm like, this is not who you were when we were dating, Matt. Where did that Matt go? I thought we were on the same page with this theology. And Matt's like, I never said that. Right? And so we're going through all of these different things. And what I realized in this, because the honeymoon phase is definitely over, I think you would agree, Matt, we still love each other. But what we've seen in all of this is that if this was just a good thing, if this was just an idea that I had as a young pastor saying like, hey, I need help and there's this guy named Matt Moore who's leading a church in hope and so I'm just gonna attach myself to him because I don't know what I'm doing in this pandemic. If this was just a good thing, this would have crumbled from the beginning. But it wasn't just a good thing. 
It was a God thing. And what God was showing me, he, say, he, he was showing me, he's saying, I want to show you what it means to pursue unity with the right motivation. You see, if our motivation would have been just church growth, this wouldn't have worked. We're way too different. Our churches are way too different. If our motivation would have just been, hey, hey, you know, I want to lighten the load from um, Hope staff, and this is going to be a lighter load for Providence staff, this also wouldn't have worked. But if this is something that God called us to, where he was saying to both of us, I'm calling you to raise the banner of Christ, not Hope Church, not Providence Church, but the banner of Christ and his kingdom. I want to see what you guys can do together. And let me just tell you, it's been really hard, but it's been beautiful. Because I've seen something that is talked about in Psalm 133. It's this random and kind of weird image of oil running down Aaron's beard and this sense of how refreshing it is when people dwell in unity. And something that has been so powerful to see are these people, these families from my former church, see their passion for the gospel reinvigorated and refreshed. They don't know about all the hard stuff going on behind the scenes and me still getting used to being a new elder and me getting used to being in a, a, a rotating teaching team and all of the different things that we're still working through. But all they see day in and day out is they see Matt, who's different, and they see me who's different, but they see that we're unified by the same thing. By the same unifier, which is Christ. And what, what's happening is people are, are kind of walking into our context and they're considering how does a white man from Matt's background and how does a black man from Sheridan's background, what is it that is so unifying that they would be willing to do this? all of the risks that they're going to take, all of the costs that they're going to go through, what is the unifying factor? And our church hears every single Sunday, week by week, this is hard, this is difficult, we're different, but this is something that God has called us to because we're believing, and this is my favorite part of John 17, we're believing that unity is the greatest apologetic for our community right now. Because unity is not just unity for the sake of itself. It's unity for the sake of Christ. We're betting on the fact that people will walk into our church and experience discipleship from people who look differently, from all of us who think differently. When you walk into our church, you see a black worship leader, you see a black teacher, you see a, 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 a white teacher. If you just talk to Matt and I, you see how different we are. But we're Betting on the fact that if Jesus meant what he said, that people will see the beautiful tapestry, that the people of Oak Park and Sacramento will look at one church and say, how did this happen? How did these two churches come together? Well, what is the actual motivating factor if it really isn't for growth? If it really isn't for just trying to build a church to really be on the map, what is that X factor? And we're betting on the fact that we would use that opportunity to point to the beautiful tapestry that God has created and for them to see 
the glory of Christ. Matt wanted me to really start talking about all of our dirty laundry and all of the things that we've gone through so far um, in a merger. But I'll just share this as a lasting thought. One of the things I've learned is in order for this to work, humility is required. And in order for this to work, we have to be proactive in stopping division before it even starts. I've already kind of seen it wrestling. You know, I'll go out to lunch with people from our church and they'll say, you know, this is good, but this is not how we did stuff at Providence. Or I'm not really loving the decisions that we're making. Have you considered maybe like, can you go and talk to Matt and the elders, and we knew there would be change, but we didn't know that there would be this much change. And one of the most fundamental things that I've appreciated about Matt and myself is we've learned in order for this to work, in order for the people and the families that we've um, invested in for so many years, we have to consistently, publicly honor and encourage one another. I have to consistently look at Matt and his leadership, and I have to consistently point to the fact that this is a leader worth following, because if you know Matt more at all, he's not just willy-nilly, he is someone very much rooted in the word of God, and he very much sees himself as an under-shepherd, right, always pointing to the head shepherd. And so something that we've really had to discover together is that there has to be a humility in our relationship. If the people don't see that we're connecting, if the people don't see that we're on the same page, and if the people begin to believe that we're in this for a cult of personality, or we're in this to kind of benefit one another, or that we're in this for any other reason besides Christ and his kingdom, this won't work. And something that I've had to be mindful of is I got a lot to learn from a man who's been in ministry for as long as I've been alive. But something that I've learned in this journey is although it's been hard, it's been beautiful because I'm counting on the fact that the people who come in from the streets of Sacramento and the people that we're discipling see two leadership teams that saw a greater vision for Sacramento and are willing to do whatever it takes in order for a greater passion for the gospel to spread in the hearts of believers in Oak Park. And so I'm hoping that's helpful to you, and I'm sure a lot of you guys want to know what that looks like specifically, and so I encourage you during the Q&A portion to ask the really hard questions because we're more than willing to open up about what that dirty laundry may look like, but um, I want to invite Matt up at this time. Thanks, Sheridan. All right, so we're going to look at John 17 here. Again, this passage was one that actually didn't stand out to me. I didn't weep when I saw it. I ignored it because I'm like, dude, this doesn't work theologically. Like, I don't understand this. Like, I would focus on other things, the, the dirty details of theology. And if we didn't align theologically, oftentimes I'm like, unity is not possible. But actually, since meeting Sheridan, I'm like, okay, unity 
is not just an ideal, it's a biblical priority, it's a biblical command. It's something like we've got to get right. And why? It's because here at the end of the prayer it says this. I do not ask for these only, but I ask for those who will believe in me through their word. That they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So why is unity so important? I used to always focus on John 13, love. we got to get love right because they will know you are my, my disciples by your love for one another. So we got to get this love right, but we also got to get unity right because the watching world is looking in at us, and somehow, some way, when we come together, that togetherness, as shared and shared, is our best apologetic. They look at us, they're like, okay, why in the world would this group of people that has nothing in common, they don't even look alike, they don't act alike, but somehow what is the bond, what is the rubber band that keeps them together? They're led to believe in Christ. And it goes on to say here, verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. What's this idea of glory? A couple weeks ago, my son and I, we went and saw the Golden State Warriors. They lost. I don't know what's going on with them, but they lost. But we went to see Steph Curry. And as you think of Steph Curry's uh, glory, you think of, like, his stats. You think of how he's a great three-point shooter. You think of how he can dribble, how he can drive. Like, there's lots of glory stats of who Steph Curry is. Well, what is the glory of God? It's his specific stats. It's his mercy. It's his love. It's his compassion. Well, that glory that God the Father gave Jesus, they're given to us. So think about that. So Jesus was described as the radiance of the Father. He was the exact imprint of his nature. It says in Colossians that the whole fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in Jesus. And they're saying, the glory that you've given me, he's, Jesus is saying, the glory, Father, that you've given me, I've given to them. So when people look at us, not just me, but we, as they look at us, are they seeing his mercy, his love, his compassion, when they look at, like, are we the best physical representation of Jesus? I mean, People in our neighborhoods, they should see these sightings of Jesus when we as the church live united together. As it goes on to say, it says, This glory that I've given, that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? What's at stake? So that the world may know that you've sent me and love them even as you loved me. I never, ever thought that unity could have this type of impact on the world until this last year. The last couple years when everything is divided and everybody wants to be united. And we as the church, this should be our brand. This should be the thing that we're known for, but we're known for <laughs> this last year. We sucked. Like, honestly, as Christians, like, it was like mass, no mass, vax, no vax. We don't meet, we meet. Like, let's just be honest. Like, we were divided all over the place. And at any point the last couple of years, we could have shined being united. 
I mean, this is the very thing that Jesus prayed for, marking us with his glory that our unity would be that apologetic. So this is like high level. This is like what Jesus is has prayed for us and is praying for us, this should be a priority. Like, I think none of us, we look at this passage and be like, you know what, I don't know if that's the best interpretation. Like, I don't know if that's really what he was saying. Like, we look at this and we're like, unity, oneness, that's what we're going for. And it's not just like getting together, holding hands. It's something supernatural. It's something divine. The oneness of the Father and the Son, somehow, someway, that oneness is going to be displayed in us. So how? How does that happen? Well, I want to camp here. Well, real quick here. This is what we're displaying. We are displaying like a billboard. We're this church marquee that somehow our unity is going to be displaying to the world the gospel. You know, so often in the past, we would focus on putting cute sermon titles on that church marquee right on the street. Now we're, the modern day church marquee is our social media branding, right? We have to have the right thing, thinking that that's somehow going to show the world that Jesus is true. But the unity, according to this passage, should be that billboard that people look and they see Christ just in the way that we interact with one another. Well, according to Ephesians, I think it gets a little bit more into the weeds of what we've been called to. So we're just going to camp here the rest of the time, and then we'll open it up for some questions. But it says this, we're familiar with this passage. Ephesians 4, verse 1, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. A manner worthy of the, your calling. So he says, I urge you. I'm not requesting, but I'm pleading. This is like this, this strong emotional exhortation. I'm pleading that you walk, not just one and done, not just sometimes, not just on Sundays, but that you, you the daily rhythm of your life, that you walk in a manner worthy. The idea of walking in, in a manner worthy is like, it's this balancing of scales, like, like, this is what you've been called to, and this is the way that you've lived. So we have to, like, balance the scale between our calling and our conduct. So what have we been called to? If you just think back in Ephesians, we're familiar with Ephesians. So chapter 1, we were called to be saints. Are we living like saints? All of us have been called, we're adopted, we're redeemed. Are we living that way? You go to chapter 2, we're, we're saved, we're reconciled. When, the church, when people look at us, do they see us living as saved, as, re as reconciled followers of Jesus? At the end of the chapter 2, it says that we are this new man, that we are this temple, that we're this new family. So we all have this same calling. So is our calling, are we balancing the scale of our calling with the way in which we're living? All of us have this similar calling on our life goes on and talks about our conduct. All of us have to, in order to do this, we have to live with humility. Not thinking highly of ourselves, not thinking lowly of ourselves, not thinking often of ourselves, but instead thinking accurately of ourselves. With gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Check this out. This convicted me when I was thinking through this. I don't think I've ever had this mentality 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Like, have I been eager? Has that been what I'm passionate about? Like, all I want, the thing that I want to focus on is maintaining this unity that God's given us. And what's this unity specifically? It says there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So whenever we see something repeated in Scripture, we see that word one listed seven times. Whenever we see something repeated, what do we know? It's important. So seven times in three verses, we see that we are called to this oneness. And I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about this oneness specifically. Because I think, as I look at my life, as I look at ministry that I've done in the past, I don't think that the ministry I've done in the past has always displayed one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. When people have looked at my life, they haven't necessarily seen in my ministry, the ministry that I've been involved in, one body. Instead, they've seen tribes. Have we not done that? Like, we size each other up by our tribal identities and distinctions. We put churches into a camps. We, we assume narratives. We emphasize uniqueness, why our brand is better. Like, my tribe's better, yours is lesser. We're biblical, you're a little bit heretical. We're missional, you're inward-focused. You know, we're, we're word-based, we're neighbor-focused. This tribalism, I would say, creates then these false dichotomies, where it's this us-versus-them mentality. We focus on superficial distinctions. Our brand, our style, why we're unique, one person put it like this, tribalism provides an excuse to exclude rather than include, and it breeds superiority. Tribalism, I think, it focuses so much, almost exclusively on differences, and rarely celebrates similarities. It's like, it's, it's my kingdom. It, it's all about what we're doing, not his kingdom. When we first moved to Sac seven years ago, we were scouting it out, getting to know some of the pastors in the area. And this one pastor who I thought would, we would just have like a brief coffee, we ended up driving around Oak Park for about two and a half hours. And he was inviting us to the neighborhood. In fact, he told us, he's like, our church cannot reach Oak Park. It's diverse. Our church isn't diverse. Like, if God is really calling you to this multi-ethnic, multi-class church, like, you've got to come. Like, we cannot reach this neighborhood. We've tried. We can't. He, he then put, like, actions to that. He's like, I, I want you to come to my church, and I want you to preach and so I did a few months later, and at the end of the sermon, he invited people from his congregation, a smaller congregation, to go with us, like a half mile down the road, a mile down the road, to plant with us. He was one of the first ones, after having been in ministry for 15 years at that point, that taught me that it's really about his kingdom. It's not about our own kingdoms. Like, so often it was like, we would view each other, especially in the planting world, it can get really sideways. We, like, view other churches sometimes as competition. 
but he's like, no, we, we need you. Like, we cannot reach this segment of the community. We, we need another church. Our church is not able. We need another church. I mean, I just don't hear pastors saying that because they honestly think that their tribe, their brand can do it all. The Walmart of all churches. You know, the lowest deal, best deal on every aisle. Even when we've been talking about relaunching, we're like, okay, well, how do you relaunch? Well, you figure out your brand, you get a cool logo, and you're like, hey, we're new, we're cool, come to our church, check it out. And one thing we've been talking about in relaunching, going public with this new church is, what if it's not that? What if we just promote Jesus? Like, what if we just promote all churches, like all churches that we feel comfortable with, I guess? Like, and so we're like designing a church that does, uh, design, designing a shirt that doesn't have our brand on it, and we're actually, Sheridan wrote this letter to different pastors in the neighborhood that have been there for decades, just thanking them for what they've been doing, the work that they've already been doing, and that we're doing similar work, thanking them, saying that we're, hey, we're new to this, and we're with you in this. And I don't know if it's going to get more butts in the pews, it might not, but I think it's kind of in line with Jesus' prayer a little bit more than the way in which I know at least me, I've launched churches before. Because in the past, it would be like, okay, here's what we're doing. Here's why it's cool. Here's why it's unique. And here's what the other churches are doing. Yeah, it's worked for a bit. But, like, here's why we're better and unique and why you need to check us out. And I'm like, that's just not, I would say, as much the heart of one body. Another thing is we're called to be one spirit. We have this one spirit, this common bond, he's the glue that unites us together. It says in 1 Corinthians, 3, uh, 1 Corinthians 3 that we are the temple of God and his spirit dwells within us. And yet what we see often, especially in us pastors, I would say, is we like things like 1 Corinthians 3 where it says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. You know, we like that. We like the platforms. We like the name drops. We like to know how many people are following us, how many people have heard our latest sermon. But that's not what God has called us to. That is not <laughs> what the Spirit is wanting to do. The Spirit unites. The flesh in us wants to make us a little bit more set apart than other believers, especially other pastors. Hope. We have all been called to this one hope. Obviously, Christ is our hope of glory, as it talks about in Titus, that we're waiting for our blessed hope. Like, people should look at us and see that we have this same future. Our eyes are set on the same goal, the same mission. But they often see in us despair. I'll tell you, I thought I understood hope until I started church planting. Church planting has sucked. Like, it is so hard. I mean, everybody talks about how church planting's great. You talk to enough planters, it isn't that great. Like, it is so hard. It is so humiliating. Like, when we moved to Sacramento, we named the church Hope Church because we just knew that people in the neighborhood, that's what they were lacking. That's what they needed. But I didn't know that God was wanting to teach me hope in him, and especially hope in ministry. Because in the past, when I was a part of churches that were fruitful and flourishing, I had hope. 
But with church planting, there is so much sowing. You just sow day in and day out. And sometimes you're watering and you look back and you just feel like you're making mud puddles. You're like, what is happening? Nothing is growing. And I was watching to me just not having hope, not having joy. When I was planting in South L.A., like all these dudes were flaking on me. I was setting up appointments, sharing the gospel, trying to get myself into the culture, into the neighborhood. And the one guy that I was investing in most, like the one, like of all the seeds that I scattered, the one that I thought was at least some, bearing some fruit, he was my across-the-street neighbor, and he came to me, and he said one day, we were just talking, he's like, hey, your God has called you to this, right? I'm like, yeah, he's called us to. That's why we're, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for God. He's like, then why don't I see joy in your life? And I'm like, oh, well, there goes that fruit. Like, I mean, I got nothing now. But it was just humbling, and he wasn't seeing hope. He was seeing me frustrated. He was seeing me just, he saw despair. And because of that, he wasn't seeing Jesus. We are called to one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one Savior and Lord. And yet I think sometimes us pastors are really good at making it about us. Me, myself, and I. Like we want to call the shots, right? We want to be in charge. We're wanting people to remember our sermons versus our Savior, right? Like, how often have I thought over a talk thinking, is that illustration going to land? Like, is that story compelling? Is that joke funny? Does the ending, is that really heartfelt? But have I thought, like, what do I want my sermons, what do I want our church to be showing? Do I want them to see Jesus? Like, when people look at us, do, they, do, do we make it obvious to them that Jesus is our chief shepherd? Or are we kind of center staging it? Are we making it so much about us? Because we know it's like personalities plant churches. I mean, it's true. I mean, you take a personality out and the church shrinks. But like, do we believe that Jesus is a better personality? Do we believe that he's the one that is best at planting his church? Faith. We are called to this one faith. And yet, I think the watching world sees in us doubt. Like, we're not talking enough about the work of Christ. I mean, how often I get focused on other things. How often I make it about other things. Like, if the watching world were looking at us, taking notes on our attitude, our actions, our decisions, would they have an accurate picture of our faith in Jesus? Would they see that? Would they look at us and would they be like, okay, those people, they, they kind of like, they try really hard to be like Jesus, and yeah, they're hypocrites. For, for the most part, they're trying hard, but do they see people that are desperate and dependent upon Jesus? Do they just see us daily living into that reality of who we claim this Jesus is? This one baptism we're all called to this baptism of where we were, Romans 6, we, we have this change, this old self versus the new self. Like, do we make it about that, the gospel? 
where, there are, where our old self is dead and the, the, we have this new life, we have this same experience where this, we have at a core level this life-liberating, heart-altering experience of the Spirit. You know, I went to a conference several years ago in Austin, Texas, and it was about community and mission and we were all, that's when the church was buzzing with like, hey, we got to be communal. We got to be missional. And this guy got up there and he said this, if we refocus the church on community, if we refocus the church on mission, but fail to keep the church focused on Jesus and his gospel, we fail. Like, I think sometimes I'll get on soapboxes, churches will get on soapboxes, they'll make it about this, that, or the other thing, but are we not all just supposed to be about that life-transforming work of where Jesus comes in and he causes us to die to our old self and be raised to our new self? Like, isn't that what we're all about? Can't I, sh shouldn't I be able to just look at that other church and be like, you're preaching that same gospel. Yeah, it's a little bit corny the way you do it. Yeah, it's a little bit awkward the way your style but, like, shouldn't I be able to look at other churches and be like, you're saying the same thing and applaud it? Shouldn't I be able to rejoice when other people are baptized that aren't part of, like, my crew, my tribe? Like, shouldn't I be able to? Shouldn't I rejoice and be thankful when another church is blessed and growing and mine's not? Like, like if we're all on the same team, if we're all pushing for the same mission, like why is it that it feels like we're just against each other and we're taken from each other and why can't we rejoice? Why is unity not our priority? Final thing is this, one baptism and one God. And it says in this passage, the way it finishes off, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all, and in all. Like, are people seeing that? Are people seeing that this one God and Father shows no partiality to his children? That this one God and Father that we have, he's deeply devo devoted to us, he's fully delighting in us. When people look at us, do they see that we're adored, we're, we're loved and cherished by this Father? And see that we are surrendered to this same God? Or does it look like our hearts in, attached to all these other idols where we have all these other affections where we're worshiping maybe with our lips this one God, but we're surrendered to all these other affections? You see, all of these things I would say, going back, this is not anything that we need to obey. There's not a single command in this passage. We're called to live into and we're called to embrace what Christ has already done for us. This, this is who we are. We, not me. I'm not these things. We are one body. We have been called with one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. This is the common bond. Like we have enough in common, then why is it that we're not getting along? Why is it just so, like why has it been the testimony of Sheridan and I, when we were flirting with the idea of like dating and being engaged, and people were like, I don't know, I, I don't know if that's going to work, I don't know if that's best, like why in the world is that not thought of more often? Why can't churches partner together more? I think it's because we've lost sight of what we have in common, and we've highlighted and begun to celebrate all the things that are different. 
the things that make us unique, the thing that makes our brand of Christianity stand out from another. And so I'm going to invite Sheridan back up here. And this is larger than we anticipated as we were thinking through this, but we have just some questions that we want to put out to you guys for discussion. And because we're larger, let's pivot here. Why don't we do this at tables for a few minutes? We have 45 minutes, right? Is that right, that clock? Yeah. So at your tables, for a few minutes, we have three questions. The first one is this, and think of it like this is high level. We're talking theology, ideology, and then we're going to get down into the dirty details, into the weeds of this as we go down. But the first one is this, and I want you guys to think through this. Although we agree unity is a biblical priority, I would assume we've seen that, you know, Ephesians 4, John 17, how does our theology or ideology inhibit unity? So spend a few minutes at your table thinking about that. We know unity is a priority. What still inhibits unity? Specifically, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, we can. I'm talking about like dirty, dirty lines. <laughs> but I think it'd be good to hear about this one because we agreed, agreed on this. Yet when we work this out, totally.
All right. So let's hear from a few of you guys. Although we agree unity is a biblical priority, how does our theology or our ideology inhibit unity? Any of you? What are some thoughts? Yeah, go for it. That's good. Yeah, I've always thought about it in-house. Like, we got to get unity, even pragmatically speaking, not biblically speaking. Like, pragmatically, it's easier to get along. We'll get more done if we get along. But let's not worry about them. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay. That's true. Good. Was there something back here? Yes. Yep. Yep, that's good. Good. Wow. Yes. Yep. It's good. Thanks for sharing that, Anthony. Is he on? Yeah. Great is we we haven't had any theological uh, hiccups so far. No. That's a complete joke. We've had many. Yeah. Uh. So. So yeah. they came from an AD background. Yeah. And we, let's just say we did so assemblies of God, God background. Yeah. Did, yes. Uh, and so. Had a little tongue. Sure, yeah. Yeah, you want to hear about that? Yeah, um, a few families from what was Providence Church during worship time would speak in tongues, but more specifically, um, our, our worship leader that came on with us, she was speaking in tongues on the mic. So she would be leading and exhorting, and then she'd go into, you know, speaking in tongues. And so, you know, Matt's like, Hey, dude, we got to talk, you know. Uh, I don't know. And I, had, I hadn't heard it. It's not like I was, like, plugging my ears. It's just um, I hadn't heard it so far. And he's like, yeah, she's doing it. So let's, let's graciously, you know, start the, the process. But our approach, and we both came to the same conclusions biblically, like, like publicly, unless there's an interpreter. Interpreter, it's probably a, a, a you know, it's not probably, it's a no go. But how we would approach her in having that discussion, that's where we f saw our first leadership difference. Um, and we've classified it as proactive and reactive. So, what at what mark did this happen? What this is three, four months in? Yeah, I think it's more like two months in. Two months in? Yeah, it started happening. Yeah. We had already had this talk at a certain thousand. Level. Like, yeah. we on the same page with tongues. We both had, like, we had written out a sheet of eight 
an, a two-sentence statement about it. We're like, yeah. we're good, right? We're good. Okay, moving on. Yeah. Patrick, one of our elders, was super helpful. He's like, okay, let's push into this uncomfortability. Well, after this happened, we came out with a 12-page document. Yes, yeah. So it went Which from, we're going to email to all of you if you're... Yeah. If you're <laughs> but the document wasn't as valuable as the two or three months of discussion yes, going into yes, it. Yeah. Um, because we realized that there would be times where Sheridan would be like, yeah, 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 I get it. It's good. It's good. And then one of our other elders was like, I don't think Sheridan's comfortable with this yet. I don't think we're really unified. We're just nodding our head. And we would have to push in like, okay, what part of this isn't jiving? And so that two months of pushing into that theology was super uncomfortable for me. Yeah. I'm like, dude, let's get this done. She's still talking in tongues every Sunday. Like, let's figure this out. Yeah. And he's like, let's be patient. So. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, we, we came to the same conclusions biblically, but we there was like this kind of meta conversations where I'm like, okay, we're two months in. Let's build that relational equity. This isn't the ideal. And Matt's like, yeah, but whatever we cultivate right now is going to end up being a norm. So we need to kind of nip this in the bud. And so that was one of the first snags where we had the same conclusion on what needed to be done, but the timing was was a difference of opinion. But, yeah. So. I th- How'd it work out? Work out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's good. It's yeah, good. it's good. Uh, she quit. Yeah, she left. She quit. Yeah. So, um, but on her own, I, I'll say this: I think um, amicably, definitely, yes. and I think she started to understand. Um, yeah, she she had been praying about it already, even before this became an issue, and so uh, she kind of took that window as I think I'm looking for a different context in a church and things like that. So, but yeah. I think for me though, I had had this topic like dialed in theologically, but not relationally. You know, not that relationships change things, but they do change things. They don't change your convictions, but they change your posture. And so then seeing people that I knew and was developing a love for doing something that I thought was not biblical but that wasn't their intention to be heretical, even though in the past I would have assumed, like, they're being heretical, and they're intending to be heretical, but they weren't. They were honestly doing what they were taught, and so just the patience of, like, okay, this was a journey for me. I can't rob them of that process, that journey. Just because I wrote it, and I think it's clear, and all of us elders agree that it's clear, doesn't mean that within uh, 10, I I don't know, like an hour conversation that everything's going to change, and so I think sometimes, um, like, our theology, although it might be dialed in, although it might even be correct, um, it's not going to promote unity. It's, it's kind of how we stand theologically. And honestly, this is one thing that happened. I was shocked. Like, we moved towards each other in this. Like, what came out, the document that came out, was not where I was originally before the merge. And so when we looked at the text again, it brought us closer. Um, where did I put the clicker? All right, so we're going to get go down a little bit more here. Well, let's talk about one other thing, too, with this. So you with your AG background, Pentecostal background, 
there was an observation that you came to in this. Yeah, the theology. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think why I wanted to take the relational time is because I came from a background where this was deeply tied to their salvation. So this was like a, a deep theology issue. So for a lot of people from my background, that part of receiving your prayer language was confirmation that you were in Christ. So this is deep, which is actually something we discovered she believed. And so for me, I'm like, we got to be super pastoral, take this slow, um, and, and kind of shepherd her through this, which ultimately I, I, I believe we did. But um, what I would be in conversation with the elders um, uh, is just, hey, guys, I come from this background, and this thing is deep. So that's why I'm really encouraging, like, we can't just come in and be like, hey, that's got to, you know, stop, right? Um, but we do need to say stop, because that's we both come to the same biblical conclusion, but how and when we do that um, is what we had to work through. I, if, I remember sharing on the Assemblies of God official website, <laughs> um, it kind of goes into what AG believes about, you know, um, speaking in tongues. And if you know Matt, he's very biblical and he knows the text very well. And so I sent it to him one day as we're having this conversation. I'm like, hey, here's some more context. This is kind of my background. This is what people believe. And in like a text essay, he's tearing it apart. Like, no, dude, like they said this. Like, are you kidding me? And I'm like, yeah, no, I know. I'm just, don't kill the messenger here. I'm just letting you know. Uh, it's what people, so, yeah. But, but with that, like share like how you shared with me. Like I came from the background. If the text says it, yes. like I oh, believe I it, we believe it. Yeah. There was a, yeah, what I ended up telling Matt, um, is in that background, um, it experiential, how you're experiencing specifically the Holy Spirit is key, right? Um, and so the text, like the biblical authority is sort of like a, it's informing um, mainly like how you're going to go about having those experiences. It's It doesn't have the highest biblical authority. And so I didn't even share that with Matt until like two months into the conversation where Matt's like, but dude, look, the text is saying it. I don't see how this is. And I finally had to say, well, for some people um, from this background, they're not just going to explicitly say, I don't really care what the Bible says, but they're going to point to their testimony that no one can say didn't happen to them. And it's like, yeah, I see that, but look at what happened to me six years ago. You're going to tell me I can't express this in the context of worship. So I just kept coming back to the point. This is a very nuanced issue. So, yeah. Questions? So it's interesting, there was relational tension and fallout from this. So th- this theological thing hit us as couples where Sheridan and Marissa came over to our house. And for five hours, yeah. we sat around the table talking about how this theological issue 
caused relational hurt with us. Yeah. Um, I've never been in that type of a transparent conversation that was so vulnerable yeah. where it was like, you hurt me here. This is why. Let's talk through it. Yeah. And when we walked away from that five-hour conversation, it was great. Yeah. And it's been good ever since. But um, it's interesting how that theology, while we were united on paper and we were united in the text, but it was like just that relational fallout of that person leaving yeah. was harmful and hurtful. And it kind of put a wedge between us. So She was like a... I think Matt understood this. She was like a spiritual daughter in a sense, right? So she had been leading worship at our church previously. So I think there was a sense of protection, right? Where I kind of kept coming back to, she knows me, she doesn't know you guys as elders. And so I'm the one who's gonna have to have this conversation. And so what I noticed is when we ended up having the conversation um, because speaking in tongues was a part of Providence culture in some ways, she she very much heard it as, wait, is this you, Sheridan? Or is this, are you now just kind of representing what the new church eldership and leadership is? But I think that was key because I, it, I never went about it with her like, yeah, like I'm just saying this because, you know, the new guys don't like this. It never was like that. It was very much like, Hey, moving forward, this is what our expectation is for our for the order, right? And our worship experience, and yeah. So, I think there's still tongue speaking going on, you know. Um, yeah, and we're gonna sniff it out. Yeah, we're sniffing. <laughs> but it's it's not on the mic right now, which is good. But during some of the yeah. our worship leader, he kind of opens it up sometimes and just flows, and it's in those flowing sections that I'm like, <laughs> get a little uptight. And I start hearing some rattling and stuff. And it's yeah. like that. I'm like, okay, we can crock pot that. Yeah. It was where the worship leader, when she was praying in tongues, like my middle son, he's like, was she speaking Spanish? I'm like, well, not exactly. It was like, it, and not only that, it was like, it was being broadcast. At, we're, we're in a theater. There's a speaker on the sidewalk. And we have the yet to believe walking by. And I'm like, dude, what if they hear that? Is it going to be a 1 Corinthians 14 where they're going to think we're out of our minds? And I was probably, like, overplaying it because I was taught to overplay this issue. But, like, regardless, it was like, I think now we can crockpot this as we do membership. And I hear stories of people like, okay, I got saved and I got my tongues. And I'm like, all right, noted, noted. Yeah. Let's, yes, you can be a member. Let's just walk with you through this. Yeah. All right, um, let's go down a level here. Let's think internally. How might our church ethos internally, so think about the church staff, your programming, things of that sort, and then think about your mission strategy externally. How will those things possibly work against you displaying unity to the world despite our best efforts and best intentions? So spend a little time thinking about what you discuss as a staff, the ethos of your staff, the culture of your staff. Think about how you do outreach. Is that promoting unity or is that somehow creating a little bit of maybe tribalism in your church? So spend some time talking about that and then we'll bring it back together.
All right. So let me read the question again. How might our church ethos internally and our mission strategy externally work against displaying unity to the world despite our best intentions and efforts? Thoughts? What are your thoughts on that? You want me? Okay. Yeah, the one on the screen. Yeah. So as you think in-house, the way you guys do church, the way you guys talk about church, the way you talk about Christianity, is it promoting unity? As you think externally, the way that you're doing mission out beyond the church walls, is it promoting unity? Yes. Yeah, I, yeah. sometimes we're more set apart than we're called to be, you know, with what we're doing. Other thoughts? Yuvin, yes. Other thoughts? Yeah. Oh no, yeah, that, that's a good point. I, I, I sense that. I think when people see churches working together or even missions group, the focus is on the cause 
right? Not, but when it's just kind of a soul community, hey, let's get as many raffles and prizes out there to kind of get people to this church, this community. Um, I mean, people aren't stupid, right? They, they kind of know, like, we want you to sit in our seats and not the church down the road, but to see those two churches, not every church needs to merge, but to see those two churches, you know, serve together, they're like, wait a second, you know, what, what is making them get together? And, yeah. That's not common. You know, we're comfortable with giving kind of outside of our draw area. You know, we'll bless a church that's not going to take from our church. Um, I think that was the, after having ministered in the Southern California area for so long, it's so tribal. Um, and at least in the urban area, it's been more my experience that no church is trying to be the stop all best church ever. It seems like at least that's been the mentality that's been put in me by other pastors. It's like, we need each other. Like, I just don't hear that from too many other churches. Like, we need each other. We need you. We need, we, in order to be a full demonstration of the gospel, it can't just be our church. It's got to be all of our churches. And that was so refreshing and resetting for me in Sacramento. Um, I don't know why, after 15 years of ministry, that wasn't, like, primary. And that wasn't one of the first things I was taught. Um, you were going to share something about this, the elder thing? Oh, yeah. No, I, I think um, kind of going back to the relational dynamic between Matt and I. So I'm the sole new elder on this elder team. And so Matt and I both have personalities that are pretty conflict avoiding in a lot of ways. And so what one of the elders, who's really great, who has no issue with speaking up, Patrick knows who I'm talking about, um, will say right, say really right what's on his mind. He was noticing and getting very frustrated in meetings when these really hard issues came up. You know, Matt and I were kind of like dancing and kind of beating around the bush. It's like, yeah, well, you know, we'll work through it. But man, you're a great leader, and you'll you'll know how to talk to that person. And then we would talk to this elder and kind of really state what our true feelings were. And he's like, you guys need to get on the same page with one another or you're gonna end up being bitter, right, um, against one another, but kind of just putting on a facade and the church is gonna see that and, and experience that. And so being in that eldership plurality during this process, it's been good to be held accountable to that relationally. One, one thing internally too, like, so we, I talked kind of negatively about churches having a brand. I think there's nothing necessarily wrong with having a brand, but like, so our brand are our values. We have be with God, live his family, love like Jesus. I mean, every week we're pounding those in. That's like our metrics for church health. That's our metrics for our individual health. How is our be with God, our live his family, love like Jesus. But as I share them, I often say, this is no different than every other church that you've been part of. It's the great commission, the great commandments. It's the same. 
This is just the way we say it. And so kind of in saying it uniquely, I also say it, it's, it's just like every other church that's doing the same thing. We're all on the same page. It's no different. Don't come here and think that this brand of Christianity is somehow unique, superior. It's elite. It's just the same stuff that you've been taught. And so um, I do think sometimes it's helpful to have a brand as long as it's not a brand that's like distinguishing or making yourself superior to those other people that are laboring in that exact same trench as you. Um, so I wanted to push in a little bit more to the externally thing because I think that's when the yet to believe are watching most closely. So like what you had shared and um, what you shared, Mark, as well about the yet to believe, there is something that they uh, really like about seeing the churches work together. When we first moved to Sacramento, we did uh, ethnography where we went around and interviewed a bunch of people trying to figure out the lay of the land. We had done the demographics. We had read the um, stats on the neighborhood. So on paper, we knew what it was, but then we went into the parks and interviewed a bunch of people. And we came up with five personas because it's a diverse neighborhood. So we couldn't just have like the Saddleback Sam. Like this is who the one person we're reaching. But here's the five types of people we're reaching. Here is our demographic, so to speak, with stories. And what we found was all of them had the same negative view of the church. They all drive in. They don't live here. They don't care about here. They want to beautify their properties, but not ours. They're four-wall churches, four-fence churches. They don't reach out. And so um, gangs had a better, I, think, I mean, it, they saw the churches no different than the gangs in our neighborhood. And so there was just, they were out for each other trying to kind of get their own turf. And so that was something that stood out to us. And we're like, we really have to display um, in everything that we do this unity. And so we were just chatting here like, when we kind of made the decision to relaunch and go public as a church and we came up with this shirt that's a super cool shirt that we would love to put our brand on. Like we would love to put our brand on. Um, but knowing if we put our brand on it, it would somehow take away from the unity that God's called us to. And you want to speak to what was wrestling in your heart? Once? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's like we, you know, I had been preaching and claiming unity in the the importance of having a kingdom perspective, and then Matt messages me this dope-looking shirt, and I'm like, this is awesome, and I'm looking for our logo on it. He's like, yeah, but why don't we just kind of send these shirts out and not emphasize one church Sacramento, but just like have a kind of a kingdom perspective. I was like, what? Like, come on, we want, you know, and it stung, and I even saw in my own heart how used I am to making sure that banner, whatever that church is, can kind of get as high as possible so that people um, can see it and ha having to work through that. And even, um, we've had a lot of church growth recently, and we talk about how we both are very suspicious of that. We're always like, okay, yeah, we'll see. And it's, it's really exploded in a lot of ways, and I've been sensing, I'm like, okay, our church is sort of the flavor of the month, right, where people are kind of checking us out and I think now having this kingdom perspective when I meet you know couples coming from different churches um it feels odd because they're they're just they're like hey we kind of want to just you know go with you guys now and I'm always curious to know um but if you are really engaged with your other community what's going on there 
Um, why would you leave that? Uh, are you just here because it's new? Um, if there's like no deep-rooted differences that, that can't you know, be reconciled, um, don't just come to us because we're new or because you're, but there's a reason maybe why God has called you to the church that you're coming from, and you, you, you should be obedient to that. So. so this is one I think that we're wrestling through even at a heart level, and that's kind of where I want to wrap up. And rather than being uh, going into group discussion, just consider this question and then shout out some things. At a heart level, what causes disunity among leaders in the same city but different trenches? So at a heart level, like when I'm having lunch with another pastor, because I know it's the thing to do, you know, you, let's get together in those prayer groups, let's have coffee, let's touch base. Like what's going on in our hearts as we're listening to the other pastor, not boast, but maybe just talk about their ministry, what they're doing. What have you noticed? Let's be honest. What have you noticed going on in your heart that is working against unity? Let's talk about some ugliness. Insecurity. Yep. Thank you, Mark. Insecurity. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I thank you. That, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. No, when I start to feel insecure, I do go there. I'm like, well, what is it that they're doing to cause me to feel insecure? Oh, it's because of this or that. Not realizing that. Just being around them is bringing out something that's already in me. What else? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when we were in South L.A. the first six months, uh, my family and I, we went around to a bunch of different churches. All of them were African-American, and I watched myself making all these distinctions. I'm like, they're doing this. We're going to do this. They're doing this. That's not cool. We're going to do this instead. And then I would meet with the pastors. I'm like, that's weird. We're not going to be weird. And that was honestly what was going on in my heart again and again and again and just realizing what, what is that? Why do I need to? What I mean, us pastors, we're such an insecure bunch. And why is it that we need to feel um, different? Why can't we just feel the same? What, what, would, what would be the negative outcome if we met with another pastor? We're like, man, they're like-minded. They're in the same trench. Do we feel like we're of no value? We don't have a place? Like, do we feel like because we're different somehow, that is why God called us? 
because he wasn't doing work and now he is because he called you? Like, what is it that causes us to go there? You know, all these people that have been doing God's work for so long, we're like, that's fine and all, but now we, now I've arrived. I've just noticed church planting for me has brought out so many sins that I didn't even know were there. Um, and it often has, it comes out when I'm sizing myself up with other pastors, not in this room, because you guys are in different trenches, so we're not in competition with each other, but when it's the pastor that church I'm walking by in the morning when I'm praying, and I'm like, they're looking at the same group of people. We're trying to reach the same group of people, and I'm like, ah, I'm looking for distinctions, not similarities and commonalities. Even church merger, oh, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, even church merger has brought out sins in my heart that I didn't even know were there. I tell Matt all the time, families from Providence will come to me all excited, like, dude, I've never heard the gospel before. Like, the way Matt conveyed that. And I'm like, you stop. <laughs> you have heard the gospel before. And stop telling people that, you know? And, I, and, and then I'm just seeing, like, all this growth, like, oh, it's so refreshing to be in the Word. I'm like, you have been in the Word. And so, but, in, but really quieting that voice and not allowing that comparison to really even go anywhere, man, has been humbling. Yeah, that, because now I used to be preaching most weeks. Now I'm only preaching once a month. He's preaching most of the time. And I have not heard one critique of it. And I'm like, really? Like, no one's missing me at all. Like, and <laughs> everyone's growing and thriving. And so it's interesting that you referred to it earlier, that honoring of each other. And as we're honoring, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're being overlooked or we're being dishonored. It's like, can I really uh, rejoice when people are complimenting Sheridan? Can I rejoice in that? A guy that discipled me in college, he said, you will know how healthy you are as a Christian if you can truly rejoice when you are, when a brother is blessed and you are possibly overlooked. And so it's like when I'm hearing him getting complimented or him getting seen or other people blessed by what he's doing, like what's going on in my heart, um, that often indicates a health or lack thereof often. So, All right, so we're at 1016. Um, Carly, did you have something? Go for it. Yeah. And I think I think it's also not possible in the sense of like <laughs> to to be honest like it's I think that's so much of Christianity we look at it we're like I cannot do this without you God. And I know that sounds cliché but like there's just in this merge there were so many things that people warned us about that God got us through. Um and so I think that's just like looking at unity and being like it is really not possible unless God does this relationally at this level, but even our two churches coming together. So 